Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Ted Nordhaus and Michael Schellenberger, co-founders of the Oakland, California-based Breakthrough Institute, speaking about the long death of environmentalism and where the environmental movement stands today. It's a great pleasure to be back at Yale. This is our third visit in, since uh, the death of environmentalism in, uh, came out in 2004. I'd also like to thank uh, Dan Esty uh, for extending us the invitation uh, and to Suzanne Stahl for uh, really making it happen. Um, the other uh, purpose of our visit is uh, to promote or in recruit really for our summer fellowship program. We have a summer fellowship program called Breakthrough Generation where we take uh, uh, mostly graduate students and the, ex and the occasional exceptional undergrad uh, to really come with us for the summer. It's a, it's a paid fellowship um, uh, really for people that are looking for a career in policy and policy analysis. Uh, in 2005, and Ted and I are going to, we're a little old-fashioned in some ways, so we're going to actually read a, a, a specially prepared talk for you all, um, and we're not going to show a single slide, um, and there's no Twittering at all, uh, um, but you, you can, but we won't do any. Um, in early 2005, Yale invited us uh, to debate the essay, Death of Environmentalism, and since then the school has continued to demonstrate a genuine interest in what our friend and colleague Peter Teague has taken to calling ecological innovation. Uh, this school in particular trains its students to ask very hard questions. We saw this firsthand in uh, last summer. Uh, we were uh, graced with the presence of Yale School's master's candidate, David Mitchell, uh, who can also tell you a little bit about the program if you're curious. Uh, but we also see it in your flagship publication, Yale 360, which under the leadership of Roger Cohn is publishing some of the most interesting green thought anywhere today. And so we're very grateful for this opportunity, again, to reflect um, on the seven years since the essay came out and make some new arguments about what we believe the green movement must do now. Seven years ago, the two of us started interviewing America's environmental leaders with the intention of writing a report on the politics of global warming for an October 2004 meeting of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. We came away quite disappointed. Not one of the environmental leaders we interviewed articulated a compelling vision or a strategy for dealing with the challenge. None expressed much, much interest in rethinking their assumptions about the problem or the solutions. We heard again and again during the interviews the same old riffs that we had been hearing since the late 1980s. Global warming would be solved through the same kinds of policies that we had used to address past pollution problems like acid rain. Most were confident that John Kerry was, with their help, about to be elected president. And the biggest funders in the movement told us that they were just a few years away from passing cap and trade. That October, we delivered our paper, The Death of Environmentalism, at the, uh, at the conference. While leaders of the major green philanthropies and green groups hoped that the debate, and I think with it, we would just go away, uh, the essay struck a chord with many others. And the debate that followed was quite spirited. Uh, a lot of people took it quite personally. Uh, without question, the most common reaction was just, I'm not dead. Um, our, fr our friend Adam Warback gave a speech called Is Environmentalism Dead? where he suggested that environmentalists make common cause with a broader coalition of progressive interests. Uh, Yale's uh, then dean, uh, Yale School of uh, Forestry and the Environment, uh, then dean Gus Speth, questioned whether capitalism itself was compatible with ecological sustainability and suggested a radical shift in values was required to deal with the problem. Um, but in the years that followed, the fortunes of American environmentalism would seemingly turn around. In 2005, almost exactly one year after the publication of our essay, 
Al Gore came to Aspen to keynote a Yale retreat about the future of the environmental movement. Gore opened his speech asserting that environmentalism was in fact not dead. Uh, the problem was that Republicans were waging an assault on reason, ignoring science and misleading the public on behalf of their fossil fuel corporate benefactors. There was nothing wrong with environmentalism, Gore said, that couldn't be rectified by clearly explaining to the American public the science of global warming and just how serious and dire the consequences would be if we didn't act. Gore hit the road with his PowerPoint a few months and, and just a few months later, nine months later, an inconvenient truth became a global media sensation. Seemingly every magazine in this country, including Sports Illustrated, released a special green issue. Fortune 500 com companies pledged to go carbon neutral. Paris dimmed the lights on the Eiffel Tower. Solar investments became hot even for oil companies. In addition to winning an Oscar and a Nobel Prize, Gore's movie single-handedly almost revitalized the climate movement. Youth climate activism, which had virtually been non-existent prior to 2006, exploded on college campuses. And in the fall of 2007, 12,000 youth activists convened at a conference in Washington to demand uh, climate policies like cap and trade. International negotiators went to Bali at the end of that year with renewed determination to negotiate a successor to the Kyoto Accord. In the spring of 2008, Congress restarted the dormant effort to pass cap and trade legislation, and major candidates from both parties promised to reduce carbon emissions 80% by 2050. If, as Gore famously suggested, we all, all we lacked to address climate, the climate crisis was political will, then you could almost convince yourself that the heavy lifting to get the world on track to climate stabilization was mostly done. At about the same time that Gore was giving his speech in Aspen, a San Francisco civil rights attorney named Van Jones was in the process of turning his criminal justice nonprofit organization into a new wave environmental justice group. Not long after Gore accepted his Nobel Prize, Jones's book, The Green Collar Economy, uh, became a bestseller among liberals. The subtitle of Jones's book was, quote, How One Solution Can Fix Our Two Biggest Problems, by which he meant poverty and climate change. Jones and his allies claimed, and much of the liberal establishment came to believe, that jobs retrofitting old buildings and installing solar panels would revitalize the inner city, save the economy, dramatically cut emissions, and pay for themselves. By the onset of the 2008 election campaign, clean energy and green jobs was about the closest Democrats came to articulating a coherent strategy to fix the American economy and turn around our long-term decline. And in this sense, the 2008 election was proof of concept for an idea that the two of us had long advocated. Indeed, while the death of environmentalism was born of frustration with conventional environmentalism, it was also a call for a new Apollo project, which we had helped found in 2002 in hopes of creating a very different model for ecological politics, one that was focused not directly on climate change, but rather on strategies to address other more salient public concerns, like jobs and national security, through measures that also offered substantial climate benefits. And this is largely what Democrats did in the 2008 elections, offering Americans a compelling vision of a clean and prosperous energy future. They had done so not by attempting to terrify Americans into addressing climate change. Indeed, they hardly mentioned climate change at all, focusing instead on the many economic and security benefits that, bringing, that building a clean energy economy would bring. And yet, today, environmental efforts to address climate change and build a green economy lie in ruins. The United States Congress this summer once again rejected climate legislation that even if it had succeeded would have had virtually no impact on carbon emissions over the coming decade. The magnitude and consequence of this defeat are still poorly understood outside of Washington. 
Greens had the best opportunity in a generation, a Democratic White House, large Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, and yet they banked everything on a single bill and walked away with absolutely nothing, or rather worse than nothing, since today environmental credibility with lawmakers of both parties is at an all-time low. Meanwhile, green stimulus investments ended up creating very few jobs, and many of those it did create were low-wage and temporary custodial jobs, not the high-wage manufacturing jobs that created the American black middle class after World War II. And today, the clean tech sector, the darling of high-tech VCs at the height of the green bubble, is in a state of collapse. As stimulus funds expire, large public deficits threaten clean energy subsidies, both here and abroad, and Wall Street firms are now in the process of shorting clean tech stocks. The picture is no less grim internationally. Australia has abandoned its efforts to cap its emissions. Japan announced last month that it would, under no circumstances, agree to further emissions reductions commitments under the auspices of the Kyoto Accord. The European Union will meet its Kyoto commitments thanks to the collapse of Eastern Bloc economies in the early 90s, which obviously had nothing to do with global warming, and the collapse of the global economy in 2008, but not by decarbonizing its energy economy to any demonstrable degree. And the collapse of diplomatic efforts to negotiate legally binding emissions caps, first in Copenhagen and again in Cancun, has set the international process back to basically where it started in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. Now, in the wake of this crash, environmentalists have largely been pointing their fingers at the usual boogeymen. They claim that the problem has been that fossil fuel interests have massively outspent the underdog environmental movement, funding skeptics to mislead the public, and duping the media into giving too much credence to skeptical views about climate change. However, in reality, the environmental lobby massively outspent its opponents. In just the last two years, environmental organizations and philanthropies, by our rough estimate, spent somewhere north of $1 billion advocating for climate action. By contrast, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, ExxonMobil, the Koch brothers, Big Coal, and the various other well-publicized opponents of action spent, when all was said and done, a very small fraction of that. Indeed, much of the U.S. energy industry, including the country's largest utilities, helped to write and lobbied for cap-and-trade climate legislation. Nonetheless, and despite the enormous resources they have spent on public communications about climate, green groups continue to accuse the media of, quote, false balance, by which they mean giving equal coverage to skeptical views of climate change with those from climate scientists. But the phenomenon of, quote-unquote, false balance, according to the best academic studies of the phenomenon, disappeared after 2005. And even the very notion completely undermines the idea that media coverage has been biased against climate action. The complaint, after all, is that the media have reported the views of skeptics or opponents of climate action at all. The truth is that the disparate crew of academics and bloggers who make up the skeptic community have toiled in relative obscurity and have been largely ignored by the mainstream media in recent years. That skeptics have nonetheless succeeded in raising doubt among many Americans about the reality of global warming suggests at the very least, that the environmental community has profoundly misframed this problem. The propensity to blame skeptics and fossil fuel companies for the serial political failures of the environmental movement should be understood today as a tribal defense of a collective green ego, not the logical conclusion of a dispassionate analysis. So what went wrong? The green bubble of seemingly widespread interest in climate change and green jobs was, it turns out, primarily an elite phenomenon, one which had little effect upon public opinion about climate change. Public support for action to address global warming has always been broad 
and never deep and remained largely unchanged for the entire period. Indeed, the only impact that either an inconvenient truth or the green jobs movement had on public opinion was to increase public skepticism about climate science and to polarize public support for both climate and clean energy action. From virtually the moment that an inconvenient truth was released, public skepticism about global warming began to rise. The Pew Research Center for the People and the Press found that from July 2006, which shortly after Gore's film came out, to April 2008, belief that global warming was occurring declined from 79 to 71%. Gallup then found similar backlash to the movie with the percentage of Americans who believed that, quote, news of global warming was being exaggerated, unquote, rising from 30% in March of 2006 to 35% in March of 2008. Gore famously claimed that, quote, the truth about the climate crisis is an inconvenient one. That means that we are going to have to change the way we live our lives. Those apparent calls for sacrifice by Gore and other green leaders drove rising partisan polarization. John Jost, a leading political psychologist at New York University, recently demonstrated that much of the partisan divide on global warming can be explained through the psychological concept of system justification. It turns out that many Americans have a very strong psychological need to maintain a positive view of the existing social order. When Gore said, quote, we are going to have to change the way we live our lives, he could not have uttered a statement better tailored to trigger system justification among a substantial percentage of Americans. About the same time, Greens increasingly conflated acceptance of climate science with acceptance of particular policy prescriptions. To oppose cap and trade was implicitly among many Greens and explicitly among the most apocalyptic ones to deny the reality of anthropogenic warming. But this just further polarized opinion on climate science rather than uniting us in an effort to address climate change. Environmentalist appeals to scientific authority led conservatives not to abandon their opposition to state intervention in the energy economy, but rather to reject climate science. Greens reacted to these developments not by toning down their rhetoric or reconsidering their agenda in a, matter that, in a manner that might be more palatable to their opponents, but rather by cranking up the apocalyptic claims about global warming. These claims that were increasingly inconsistent, ironically, with the scientific consensus upon whose mantle Greens claimed. These efforts both further increase political polarization among conservatives and undermine support for action among many others. UC Berkeley political psychologist Rob Willer recently demonstrated through a series of very good experiments that catastrophic presentations of global warming actually reduce belief in global warming. But the failure of green climate advocacy in recent years goes beyond, well beyond a failure to properly frame this issue. Indeed, the failure of the green agenda has been as much a function of green groups and greens concluding that they had a framing problem as that they didn't. What many greens concluded after the death of environmentalism was that they needed to reframe global warming as an economic opportunity and not as an ecological crisis. And so carbon caps and the quote unquote soft energy path of efficiency and renewables were repackaged as economic and jobs policy despite little evidence that those policies would on balance create jobs. In fact, most credible economic models of proposed cap and trade policies, including those produced by government agencies, predicted quite the opposite. When green groups mostly ignored that evidence and plunged ahead with the cap and trade effort, the jobs question was more than academic. 
there were real economic consequences to proposals to cap carbon emissions, and those consequences had profound political implications for, the, for their effort, uh, for the effort that environmentalists were not going to spin their way out of. Much of the industrial Midwest is still heavily dependent on coal-fired electricity, both for household energy use and for what remains of the nation's struggling manufacturing sector. Other regions, such as the Gulf Coast, are heavily dependent upon fossil fuel industries for jobs. The result was that while the national debate was polarized by party, there was no such divide in regions such as the industrial Midwest or the Gulf Coast, where there was bipartisan opposition to policies that would significantly raise energy prices or cost jobs in important sectors of their regional economies. The defining moment in the fight to pass a cap-and-trade bill through the last Congress came, uh, came virtually before it began. Few members of Congress were willing to expressly advocate for policies that would raise energy prices, and in April of 2009, the Senate voted virtually unanimously for a resolution that cap-and-trade should not result in increased energy prices. This pretty well established that any policy that passed out of Congress would have little impact either upon emissions or on the, on the deployment of clean energy. From that point on, the national cap-and-trade debate was little more than kabuki theater, with advocates claiming the proposed legislation would significantly reduce emissions and create millions of jobs, and opponents claiming it would wreck the economy, while in reality it would have done neither of those things. Neither the version that passed the House nor the one that died in the Senate would have had much impact on emissions or the nation's energy system for at least the first decade and, and perhaps several more. But while the outcome of the cap and trade debate was a foregone conclusion, the damage done to both the environmental movement and the clean energy investment agenda has been enormous. Today, the political capital of the environmental movement is lower than it has been since the 1994, uh, e even more than the 1994 Republican takeover of Congress. Perhaps more importantly, given how poorly the national environmental movement has chosen to expend its capital, is that Greens also succeeded in both discrediting and polarizing the clean energy investment agenda when the jobs they had promised to the green stimulus investments failed to materialize and when their efforts to reframe climate policy as economic policy ended up discrediting what had been a broadly popular agenda to invest in developing new energy technologies by rendering it indistinguishable from the profoundly polarizing climate debate. Um, that's the bad news. Ted will take over on the good news, and we'll finish, uh, we'll be done in about 20 minutes. Well, thanks, Michael, and uh, thanks again to all of you at uh, Yale for having us back. It's always a, a real pleasure uh, to be here. Um, so, um, obviously, our view is that today, um, you know, the need to remake ecological politics is clearly more urgent than ever. Um, and that will require that we actually learn something from our failures this time around. Um, so consider these our 12 theses for a post-environmental movement. First, more, better, or louder climate science will not drive the transformation of the global energy economy. The resources necessary to make such a transfer, uh, transformation will not be forthcoming in pursuit of climate benefits that are uncertain and far off in the future. Uh, many Greens have imagined that as the evidence of climate change becomes ever clearer, the case for action will become stronger. But the reality is that the more our understanding of the full complexity of the climate system advances, the greater the uncertainty about the impacts of climate change 
and the attribution of those impacts to anthropogenic activities will become. This is not because the evidence for anthropogenic warming will become weaker. It will, in fact, become stronger. Um, but our understanding of how that warming, warming impacts the climate system at regional and local scales will become harder to characterize, not easier. Second, we need to stop trying to scare the pants off the American public. Doing so has demonstrably backfired. Climate skepticism is on the rise. Every snowstorm is the subject of partisan rancor. And we are no closer to acting in any meaningful way to address climate change today. Skepticism about climate change has been motivated by concerns about the remedies that Greens have proposed. The solution is not more climate science, but rather a different set of remedies. Third, the most successful actions to address climate change will not be justified for environmental reasons. The only two countries to significantly decarbonize their energy supplies over the last 40 years have been France and Sweden, and they did so for energy security reasons in response to oil price shocks, not for environmental reasons. Many conservatives are skeptical of claims made by climate campaigners, um, uh, yet believe that it's a bad idea to send a half a trillion dollars or so a year uh, abroad for foreign imported oil. Um, which obviously brings with it a host of non-environmental national security uh, and energy security uh, problems. Um, others simply see three million current air pollution deaths a year as a far higher priority. So we need to put shared solutions at the center of our politics, not our, our view of climate science. Fourth, we need to stop imagining that we will solve global warming through behavior changes. There are no doubt many good reasons for those of us with enough affluence and control over the material circumstances of our lives to turn away from um, accumulative consumption. Um, but we should not imagine this to be a climate strategy. Uh, what most Greens mean when they suggest that we need to fundamentally change our way of life, it turns out isn't so fundamental at all. Uh, they mostly mean that we need to stop the crass consumerism live in denser cities, and use public transit. Um, and while there is much to recommend each of these particular remedies, none will have much impact upon the trajectory of global emissions. That's because much of the world already lives in dense cities, more and more of us every day uh, as the world uh, urbanizes. Um, relatively uh, few of us globally today have the means to consume crassly or even own an automobile. Um, and the reality is that global development and urbanization um, are salutary trends. Uh, they bring with them the opportunity for billions of us to live longer, healthier, and freer lives. Um, but these trends also suggest that gr the green obsession with moralizing against profligate American lifestyles is entirely irrelevant to the future disposition of the global climate or much anything else that really matters to the big ecological challenges that we will face in the coming century. More and more of the world will adopt the very living patterns that Greens have so long valorized, and as they do, they will use vastly more energy and resources, not less. Fifth, we have to stop treating climate change as if it were a traditional pollution problem. As we noted in our book, Climate Change is as different from past pollution problems as nuclear warfare is, from gang violence. Climate change will not be solved with end of pipe solutions like smokestack scrubbers 
and sewage treatments plants that worked for past pollution problems. Rather, it will require us to rebuild the entire global energy system with technologies that we mostly don't have today in any form that could conceivably scale to meet the challenge. Six, we will not regulate or price our way to a clean energy economy. Regulatory and pricing solutions tend to succeed when we have good low-cost alternatives to the activities we are attempting to discourage or eliminate. We dealt with acid rain once we had access to low sulfur coal from the Western United States and reached an international agreement to phase out CFCs only once DuPont demonstrated that they could produce a cheap alternative at scale. Greens have, in recent years, substituted the almighty market in response to a carbon price signal for their past faith in command and control regulations. But the substitution problem is largely the same. Without cheap technologies, carbon prices will have to be prohibitively high to drive a quick transition to a low-carbon economy. Seventh, we need to acknowledge that the so-called soft energy path is a dead end. The notion that the nation might meet its future energy needs through renewable energy and low-cost energy efficiency has defined virtually all environmental energy proposals since the 1960s and was codified into dogma by anti-nuclear activist turned efficiency consultant Amory Lovins in his 1976 Foreign Affairs article. Lovins claimed that efficiency would allow America to dramatically reduce its total energy use and that renewable energy technologies like solar and wind power were ready to replace fossil fuels. But the reality is that for centuries, the global economy has used ever more energy, even as it has used energy ever more efficiently. And renewable energy, which Lovins and others were claiming even as early as the late 70s, was cheaper than fossil energy, remains expensive and difficult to scale. Renewables still cost vastly more than fossil-based energy, even before we cost the cost of, uh, calculate the costs associated with storing and transmitting intermittent forms of energy. Wind energy, according to the latest EIA estimates, still costs 50% more than coal or gas. Solar costs three to five times as much. In the end, what the South Energy Path has given us is coal-fired power plants, mountaintop removal, global warming, and an economy that used 50% more energy, not solar panels and wind farms. Eighth, we will not internalize the full cost of fossil fuels, even were we able to agree upon what they actually were. Like the climate science upon which they are based, economic models that attempt to model the social costs of carbon emissions are endlessly disputable. Don't like the result? change the estimated climate sensitivity, the damage exponent, the social discount rate, or any number of other assumptions until you arrive at one that you do like. To the degree that we do internalize the cost of carbon, that will be determined by the tolerance within specific political economies for policies that increase energy costs. Um, and our argument has for a long time been that that's very low. Um, Ninth, we will need to make clean energy technologies much cheaper in order to uh, decarbonize the global energy economy. Clean energy technologies, where they have been deployed at all, still require vast public subsidies in order to be commercially viable. This is simply not a recipe for bringing those technologies to scale, and simply, su simply subsidizing more of the same old technologies will bring down the cost incrementally, but not enough to displace fossil fuels at a rate um, sufficient to have much impact on emissions. 
Uh, there will be no significant action to address global warming, no meaningful caps or other regulatory frameworks, and no global agreement to limit emissions until the alternatives to fossil fuels are much better and cheaper. And this will require technological innovation on a vast scale and will require sustained state support for radical innovation through large investments in basic science, research and development, demonstration, and commercialization of new energy technologies. Um, tenth, we're going to have to get over our suspicion of technology and especially nuclear power. There is no credible path to reducing global carbon emissions without an enormous expansion of nuclear power. It is the only low carbon technology we have today with a demonstrated capability to generate large quantities of centrally generated electrical power. It is the low carbon technology of choice for the rest of the world. Even uber green nations such as Germany and Sweden have reversed plans to phase out nuclear power as they have begun to reconcile their energy needs with their climate commitments. Eleventh, we will need to embrace again the role of the state as a direct provider of public goods. The modern environmental movement, born of new left rejection of social authority of all sorts, has embraced the notion of state regulation and even cre state creation of private markets while rejecting the generative role of the state. In the modern environmental imagination, government promotion of technology, whether nuclear power, the green revolution, sin fuels, or ethanol is almost always bad. Never mind that virtually the entire history of American industrialization and technological innovation is the story of government investments in the development and commercialization of new technologies. Think of a transformative technology over the last century, computers, the internet, pharmaceuticals, drugs, um, sorry, pharmaceutical drugs, jet turbines, cellular phones, nuclear power, and what you will find again and again and again is governments investing in those technologies at a scale that private firms simply cannot replicate. Twelfth, big is beautiful. The rising economies of the developing world will continue to develop whether we want them to or not. The solution to the ecological crises wrought by modernity, technology, and progress will be more modernity, technology, and progress. The solutions to the ecological challenges faced by a planet of, nine billion, of six billion, going on nine billion, uh, will not be decentralized energy technologies like solar panels, small scale organic agriculture, and a drawing of unenforceable boundaries around what, re what remains of our ecological inheritance be it the rainforest of the Amazon or the chemical composition of the atmosphere. Rather, they will be large central station power technologies that can meet the energy needs of billions of people increasingly living in the dense megacities of the global south and that are capable of doing that without emitting carbon. Um, uh, further intensification of industrial scale agriculture to meet the nutritional needs of a population that is not only growing but eating higher up the food chain, and a whole suite of other agricultural desalinization and other technologies for gardening planet Earth that might us allow us not only to pull back from forests and other threatened ecosystems, but also to create new ones. In closing, the great ecological challenges that our generation will face 
um, demand an ecological politics that is generative, not restrictive. An ecological politics capable of addressing global warming will require us to re-examine virtually every strand of post-war green ideology. From Paul Ehrlich's warnings of a population bomb to the Club of Rome's limits to growth, contemporary ecological politics have consistently embraced green Malthusianism despite the fact that the Malthusian premise has persistently failed for the better part of three centuries. Indeed, the Green Revolution was exponentially increasing agricultural yields at the very moment that Ehrlich was predicting mass starvation. And the serial predictions of peak oil and various other resource collapses uh, that have followed have continued to fail. Now, this does not mean that Malthusian outcomes are impossible, but neither are they inevitable. Uh, we do have a choice in the matter, but the choice is not the choice that Greens have long imagined. The choice that humanity faces is not whether to constrain our growth, development, and aspirations or die. It is whether we will continue to innovate and accelerate technological progress in order to thrive. Human technology and ingenuity have repeatedly confounded Malthusian predictions, yet green ideology continues to cast a, suspe a spec suspect eye towards the very technologies that have allowed us to avoid resource and ecological catastrophes. Um, now those solutions uh, will require environmentalists not only to uh, embrace technology, but also to abandon the small is beautiful ethic that has also characterized environmental thought since the 1960s. We, the most secure, affluent, and thoroughly modern human beings to have ever lived upon the planet, must abandon both the dark, zero-sum Malthusian visions and the idealized and nostalgic fantasies for a simpler, more bucolic past in which humans lived in harmony with nature. To an older generation of environmentalists, these observations will seem antithetical to everything they have imagined environmentalism to be. If in 2004 we argued that environmentalism needed to die, today it's clear that it did die. What killed it was neither our essay, nor fossil fuel-funded skeptics, nor this or that tactical failure by green leaders or democratic politicians. Rather, it died of old age. The world in which we live economically, technologically, politically, and most importantly, ecologically, has so profoundly changed that the very foundations upon which contemporary environmental politics was constructed no longer hold. What comes next is, un, is still unwritten, and if we can find inspiration in anything today, it should be in this fact alone. And so we leave you today with the words of a great American novelist of our own generation, Dave Eggers. Uh, Eggers lost, his own, lost both his parents to cancer at the age of 21, and reflecting on the experience and how it had shaped his life, he observed the following. On the one hand, you were so completely bewildered that something so surreal and incomprehensible could happen. At the same time, suddenly the limitations or hesitations that you might have imposed on yourself fall away. There's a weird optimistic recklessness that could easily be construed as nihilism, but is really the opposite. You see that there is a beginning and an end and that you only have a certain amount of time to act. 
and you want to get started. So thank you. Thanks for having us again. If you have a question, just uh, bring a microphone to you because we're recording this, so. Uh, I have actually uh, two, I think maybe related questions. The first I, uh, comment is that I'm always suspicious of sort of sweeping arguments that are based in large part on denigrating the people that disagree with you. And you seem to have done that rather uh, much, and it is attached to the question of why do you find the need to frame the argument in such either or? You can agree with us, or you can agree with them, and you know you can't have both strategies. And the other question is more practical. I don't see any practical way of getting any uh, practical way of getting from what you're talking about to actually seeing some of what you're talking about in place. What is the, I mean, given our political realities? Sure. Should I speak into this microphone? Is this the microphone I should use? Um, well, we think there is a choice. We, we do think that you cannot have an apocalyptic, Malthusian worldview choosing soft energy technologies only well, I, I, I appreciate that you don't agree with it. Um, uh, I think our view is that there are some serious choices that have to be made and that they are mutually exclusive. In other words, uh, you can't be pro-nuclear and anti-nuclear at the same time. You can't believe that renewables and efficiency are going to be sufficient to replace a fossil energy economy and not believe that. So there are some pretty important questions here. You can't believe that apocalyptic discourses motivate the American public and that they alienate the American public. So I think we are actually making a set of claims here. Now you can, I, I would love for you to tell me which claim you disagree with, but uh, yes, we are making, we have a point of view. We think there are some hard choices that have to be made here. Um, happy to debate what those are. Uh, but I think just sort of, it's sort of like you're not, you're not offering me a, uh, something to disagree with, just that we're making a sweeping statement. So you move fluidly, it strikes me, between two sets of claims. One set of claims has to do with presentation, and one set of claims has to do with the underlying truth values of what, you, of what the situation is, right? So just because it's wrong to present a catastrophic view for tactical reasons doesn't say anything one way or the other about whether catastrophe is possible, impossible, et cetera. In that spirit, and addressing the underlying truth claims that you're making, um, I wonder, are there limits to human technological ingenuity? And if not, how do you know? You want to yeah, I mean, um, you know, these, these become the kinds of theoretical questions that, or, or I should say hypothetical questions that I don't think are particularly helpful. Um, you know, look, at some point the sun is going to burn out and, um, you know, uh, uh, life on the planet Earth will be extinguished. Um, uh, at some point the you know, universe, uh, if you believe that it's not an expansionary universe, will stop expanding and will start contracting. Um, so kind of theoretical questions about, um, 
uh, is there any limit to human ingenuity, I think are less interesting than, than particular and specific questions. You know, are we going to run out of oil? Yeah, we probably will at some point. Uh, is there no possibility that, that uh, human uh, ingenuity and technology will allow us to develop uh, new uh, and better forms of uh, energy? Um, that's where, you know, I would depart from the kind of uh, idea that there are sort of these hard limits to, to, to resources. Will, um, uh, you know, if we keep uh, uh, plundering the seas in the ways that we've been plundering the seas, uh, will all of our fisheries collapse? Probably. Is it conceivable that we uh, may kind of continue to develop and improve and expand aquaculture such that we might actually meet um, uh, sort of human desires for, uh, you know, fish? Um, uh, you know, I think that's probably pretty likely. Um, you know, and I think you can kind of start to go through these whole questions. You know, I, I think that um, uh, I, would, I would make the case that, that, you know, whether you posit that sort of somewhere out at the end of the next century with 9 billion people or 10 billion people, everything's going to run out or not, uh, I think is, you know, I think that uh, we are unlikely um, to solve that problem um, by, by deciding that the sort of nine billion of us who will soon uh, be living on the planet are going to um, sort of not consume a lot more resources because I think it's inevitable that, um, you know, even if we sort of, those of us in the developed world turn away from sort of really conspicuous consumption. I mean, the math is pretty overwhelming. You take 9 billion people um, even living at, you know, say an average of $15,000 per capita, uh, you know, income, which is the supposed happiness threshold um, where you don't need to consume anything more and you don't get any happier. You're still going to like, you know, double or triple your energy use and most of your other resource use. Um, so we'd better figure out um, how people are going to kind of live uh, much, uh, you know, continue to live improving, have improving living standards uh, uh, through sort of technological innovation that allow us to kind of continue to support that because I think we would argue it's the only way that's going to happen. I'm going to say something that's me, that'll make me really popular here. Um, I'm struck by your first thesis, more, better, and louder climate science won't drive the transformation. And you know, here we are at a school of environmental studies, and, and we're scientists here, most of us. And um, what strikes me is the presumption in that thesis that we are activist scientists, that, that, that is that more, better, and or louder climate science will in fact find that we need a transformation. It's possible that better climate science might actually show us that uh, some people will be very hard hit by climate change, but overall, the overall impacts maybe are not worth um, worrying that much about an adaptation may be the best strategy. And, and, my, and my, my, my point that's sort of related to that is that climate change seems to have sucked a lot of the air out of the environmental conversation that we were having 10 or 15 years ago. There, there are still many environmental problems to worry about that have little or nothing to do with climate change. Ocean dumping, overfishing, hazardous air pollutants, just to name a few. And I'm wondering if you can comment on that because as I look at your 12 theses, like nine or 10 of them have to do with climate change almost exclusively. Right. 
Um, well, thanks for the question. And, and to be clear, it was the, the theses were on the topic of a post-environmental politics on climate. Um, uh, but I do want to, I actually want to just agree with you. I mean, I, I, in fact, I think I agree with everything you said. Um, um, I think our view of the science and, uh, you know, and this is in part based on, based on that nature, the Trembath piece, the Trembath piece in nature, was that earlier this year? Or was it earlier last year? No. Last. No, it was last earlier year. last year, you know, where he points out that the next working group, IPCC working group report, is actually going to, you're going to have much larger uncertainties around impacts, not fewer. So, um, so I think that's a way of agreeing with you that it's, this is not going to be a question that's resolved by the science. There will not be a moment when we say, oh, okay, now we know exactly what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> um, um, I think on your second, your second point is also very important. I think, uh, um, you know, we spent like the last 10, you know, the environmental movement spent really overwhelmingly a huge amount of time over the last five or 10 years on climate. Um, you know, we think there was a lot of work that could have been done and should, should still be done on conventional air pollutants that would actually end up phasing out a lot of, you know, dirty coal plants, establishing a higher implicit carbon price than we currently have, and, and would frankly have gotten you a much larger political majority uh, on, on some environmental concerns than I think the way that the, the climate change did. Um, and I am also, I agree with you on the, on kind of global environmental problems. I mean, habitat, you know, rainforest destruction, habitat destruction, these things are all also accelerating as countries seek to convert forest lands into ranching and agricultural la lands. And, um, you know, we can kind of go, global warming is this big threat to species, but truthfully, you know, a, a far stronger causal link is from just direct habitat destruction. And that's an issue where, you know, where, where a lot of new thinking is also, I think, merited. Um, so, yeah, thanks for the question. I'm gonna, we're going to favor students. Just no offense, but we are we are we are at a at the Yale School of Forestry. We're going to favor grad students and students. So, so I just have a quick question. So it seems like, um, you know, your third point I think it was that is that climate change won't you know climate change solutions won't be driven by sort of environmental values um, or that won't sort of underline that. And um, and related to that, it seems like a lot of your list sort of points at is I think George gestured at um, sort of technological change and the ability of like large scale technological change to really solve these problems. But I'm wondering what you, just what your view is about the values that drive that technological change. Like what are, are environmental, do environmental values have a place in sort of uh, the science or the technology entrepreneurship um, to guide that in a way that might be useful? Or are there other values that should be there that we should be encouraging? Or is it valueless? I mean, I, I, I don't personally believe it would be valueless, but is that your view? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I think, you know, the answer there is uh, yes. I mean, um, uh, I mean, part of our call is for environmentalists to actually, you know, a, or post-environmentalism needs to much more clearly embrace technology as the solution, not the problem, and that, of course, means bringing environmental values and environmental vision to those technologies, um, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, nuclear power and desalinization might let us allow us to create rainforests in the desert. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 um, GMOs uh, may allow us to, uh, uh, you know, pull back um, from forests um, by intensive by uh, uh, getting higher agricultural yields. Um, you know, there's a whole set of technological solutions here that 
you know, have, uh, I would argue, are not, would not be entirely motivated by uh, ecological concerns, um, um, but would sort of in, in substantial part be motivated by those concerns. You know, at the same time, and back to this question of, well, what are, are we going to run out? I mean, right now you have two billion people on the planet who don't have, you know, the problem for them is not that fossil fuels are too cheap, it's that they're too expensive. They have no access to modern energy um, at all. And as you go from a, a planet of six or seven billion to a planet of eight, nine, ten billion, that problem becomes more severe. So actually coming up with cheap, scalable, low carbon technologies gets motivated not only by a desire to deal with climate and other environmental issues, but also to sort of meet the aspirations and, de and, and, and uh, uh, desires for modernization and development for billions of people who, you know, literally without modern energy, it is very difficult to live, um, you know, anything that begins to approach modern living standards. So we think there's a sort of a range of motivations, um, you know, uh, uh, again, most of them salutary around sort of uh, applying technologies to solve social problems. It's arguably what we've been doing for, for you know, the entire history of the species. Um, uh, you know, and really before we were humans, if you look at things like early uh, pre-human tool making and things like that. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think our argument would be that these are, um, uh, uh, that, um, you know, this sort of ecological concerns, uh, you know, uh, would be one of the major sort of animating drives towards an embrace of technology as opposed to a suspicion of it. Um, and that's obviously sort of at a core kind of ideologically of a lot of what we're arguing needs to happen. We can take we're happy to take more unless you need to unless we need to kind of move on to reception or whatever. But I mean I saw a bunch of hands go up. I mean so. I, I like that the, the students are asking questions now. It's okay. Three more and then we'll we'll drink wine. On the subject of energy, you were um, emphasizing um, technological innovation, while it seemed like you were at the same time dismissing renewable the potential of renewable energy and energy efficiency. Did I interpret correctly then that you're putting all your eggs into the nuclear basket? That's not quite right. Um, our view is that you need technology innovation. You need pretty radical innovation on all of the, all of the major energy technologies. Um, so. Yeah, including nuclear. Um, I mean, just to give you a sense of the scale challenge, if you want to meet the, the, the target of 450 parts per million, million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, and, you know, and, and as climate stabilization target, you have to build a single one gigawatt nuclear power plant every day between now and 2050. <laughs> Um, if you want to build a wind, if you want to just say, yeah, I don't like nuclear, I want to do it through wind farms, you have to build three wind farms the size of Cape Wind. That's the wind farm that they've been working on for 15 years that they can't seem, they, they're having a hard time getting built because of all the local opposition. Or you have to build about three of the Mojave Desert's biggest solar thermal plants, plus you need backup. So the technological task is just enormous. Um, so our view is that you, it would be foolish to dismiss any of these important low carbon technologies. They're all different, they all have different needs. Solar panels need much higher efficiencies in terms of converting sunlight to electricity. Um, 
you know, nuclear, uh, I, think, I think our view is that you need to move towards mass manufactured and much smaller plants uh, to avoid the high costs of construction. I think you also get much safer plants. Uh, you need radical advances in materials technology to get better batteries. Uh, you need a whole set of things to happen to fully electrify the transportation sector. Uh, our critique has been that the environmental movements uh, has, has been wedded to what, what has been called a soft energy path, which says that efficiency and renewables are the only way to go. And we think that that approach uh, and the anti-nuclear part of the environmental movement in the 70s really gave way to a, a huge expansion of coal. I mean, quite clearly, when, when we started, when we really said we weren't going to build more nuclear plants in this country, what we did is build a lot more, a lot more coal plants. Uh, this time, we're going to start building a lot more, a lot more gas plants and I think our concern is that that's still not going to deliver the kind of radical innovation that's going to be required to power a world of nine billion high energy consuming people. I, c I couldn't see which of you had your hand up first, but maybe, uh, me, uh, uh, go ahead, yeah, you in the front, yeah. Thanks. I'd like to speak to or ask about two issues. One is values. You. Um, frame many of your solutions in these sort of valueless ways about bringing people together who, who have different motivations. But as the first questioner said, you definitely include um, an attack upon the motivating values of traditional environmentalists as something that has caused them to go astray. And that's a very, very hard thing to, to get over and to approach even for a young environmentalist. Uh, <laughs> and if you really want leadership on these completely new, innovative solutions, how, where's that gonna come from if not the environmental movement? And how will we shift our values to be able to put some of your ideas into practice? And then that brings me to sort of right to my next point, which is a question. Um, you said it, we can't hold opposing views, right? We can't both believe in utopia and dystopia. We can't both believe that nuclear energy is the solution to climate change and something terrible. But I certainly believe in both those things at the same time. I think that nuclear energy is, seems like a really great solution to climate change, and I have no idea what we will do with the waste without destroying the communities where it goes. How do we resolve those tensions if we can't hold them both at once? I mean, what, what is environmentalism if not this holding of tensions? Yeah, sure. Um, well, on the first question, I would just, uh, I, I would observe a couple of things. Um, I mean, the first is, is um, uh, the, you know, I, obviously I think in this talk we've suggested a couple of things that for environmentalists to actually kind of pursue, you know, ecological solutions in ways that can kind of um, uh, sort of bring them together with folks who have traditionally rejected um, uh, both their sort of remedies and their worldview, they're going to have to let go of some ideas that have really animated a lot of modern environmentalism for a long time. Um, you know, and these include these sort of suspicions of technology, the sort of uh, uh, um, predictions of, of imminent collapse, um, um, the um, sort of remedies uh, sort of focused on um, uh, sort of restricting human activities in all sorts of ways. So we are suggesting that environmentalists are going to have to kind of really pretty profoundly uh, sort of rethink some, some long-held assumptions about both how the world works and what it will take to solve ecological problems 
if they are, uh, you know, going to be part of, of real ecological solutions. Um, uh, and, you know, I don't want to underestimate that that's sort of hard. You get used to kind of seeing the world in a particular way and having someone come and say, stop doing that uh, isn't, isn't easy. On the other hand, we think it's inevitable. Um, in other words, this really isn't about Michael and I coming in here and telling you, all, you guys, you know, we'll do this and don't do that. I mean, what I think we've always felt that what we were doing was actually sort of narrating a shift in ecological politics that was inevitable. Um, and, and it was inevitable literally because the nature of the kinds of ecological challenges we are facing today are so profoundly different than the ones in which sort of modern environmental ideology sort of came of age uh, dealing with. So our view is that that's gonna, that is what's driving this. Um, it's not about me convincing you of anything. It's that, you know, as I think uh, environmental uh, thought leaders and new generations of environmentalists sort of really get their heads around what these issues really are about, I think they are gonna kind of come to their conclusion, these conclusions on their own. Yeah. I want to say something about the, the technology, too. I mean, I think our, our view is that all technologies have unintended consequences. Some of those unintended consequences are really positive. Like, all of the tech, major technologies that power your iPhone or your smartphone were, were spin-offs of military technologies, every single one. Um, uh, you know, uh, the Internet, for example, was a way to communicate during nuclear war. That's the great thing about technology, right, is that we don't, you don't have to embrace the Cold War or support nuclear weapons to support a whole set of technology to spin off from it. There's also negative, cons un negative unintended consequences of technology, and there are negative unintended consequences of all technologies. And that the, I think the mistake we would, I think we, we wrote a recent paper, it's going to be published in Orion uh, in, uh, in the summer, which argues that we need to redefine hubris as this hope that humans could ever live in the world without unintended consequences. It is part of living in the world that you're going to have unintended consequences. So you're in a, you're in a, you're in a situation where you have to evaluate risks and you have to make choices. Um, Ted and I came of age in the anti-nuclear movement. You know, we, we went, you know, we, were, we went to the nuclear, anti-nuclear protests. We came, you know, we were raised on the gospel of Amory Lovins. Um, so we've come up, our own view on this has changed radically over the, over, and it's really been an assessment of risk. I look at the risk of catastrophic climate change, um, at frankly the three million air pollution deaths that we have a year um, from, uh, from fossil combustion, and, and also wood and dung, frankly. Um, and, uh, and I kind of go, the nuclear waste problem pales in comparison to that risk assessment, pales. I mean, it's just, I, I just, and that's not to say that there's not a nuclear waste problem. It's to say that the, you, you, this is I, what we want to say is you actually, we do have to make choices. We are going to, right now, environmental groups are having to choose whether they're going to support a clean energy standard that the president is proposing that includes nuclear power, for example. So that, that's what I meant to say about it. It is not to say that, there is, that the world is not filled with ambiguities and contradictions, because it's also obviously filled with those too. Yeah. So I guess we promised this would be the last one, and everybody can go home. <laughs> or you can come and argue with us more in the hallway. That's what we're here for. Thank you. Um, my question was, you seem to heavily discount uh, the impact that uh, you know, local or sort of opposition from the right uh, has had on the failure to pass a, of some of these bills. And you know, I find it interesting because if we look historically, I mean, the behaviors are there. I mean, we've seen the opposition. We've seen that 
they are funded by you know coal oil interests in a lot of cases they are big oil and coal um, and so I'm curious what makes you think that uh, just proposing this approach that will you know not penalize uh, oil coal all these uh, carbon fuels but that will subsidize uh, technologies that will substitute uh, the the products of those interests why would those uh, congressmen congressmen and senators sort of you know vote yes for that when that will weaken yeah. the people that fund them I mean what What's well, to stop them from, from blocking this, look, too? Look, what we are not here to suggest is that any of this will be done without conflict. Absolutely, there will be battles to fight. The question is, on what terms and on what battlefields are you going to fight? Um, and our point is not to discount that there's been significant opposition and not insignificant amounts of money spent on it. But frankly, this idea that sort of environmentalists where this sort of David versus the Goliath outgunned by fossil fuel interests is just ridiculous. The environmental movement spent a billion dollars over the last two years alone at least, probably substantially more, communicating and advocating for action on climate change. This is the best funded social movement in the history of humanity. Um, the, the, the resources at the disposal of the environmental movement are enormous. Um, so I think our point is that um, when you are able to actually significantly outspend your opponents, outcommunicate them, dominate the airwaves, dominate media coverage and how media coverage is framed around these issues, and you are still serially losing these battles, then you've probably defined the fight in the wrong way. And that's not to say that defining the fight in a different way will eliminate the fight. It means it will put you in much better position to enact the kind of changes that need to be enacted um, if you are actually uh, you know, offering the American public you know, uh, some compelling vision for what the future looks like, how we get there, that's in keeping with sort of American faith in technology, faith in innovation and invention, um, and the role that the federal, the, the American state has played for over 100 years in driving every major technological transformation uh, that we've been through. Um, you know, I would note, and you know, obviously the circumstances are much worse now than they were two years ago, but you even, you know, you kind of compare the fact that Obama was actually willing to get up there and not only talk about that stuff in his State of the Union address, but lead, you know, spend the first third of his State of the Union address on that, where it's just been a struggle to get him to say anything about climate change. Um, and even there, it was all coded, you know, market-based systems, and, and I'm not even going to actually name the thing that we're going to try to do because no one can understand it, and when they understand it, they don't like it. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, just that comparison at least suggests pretty strongly to us that a kind of strategy that's based on that kind of sort of meta-framing about what we're doing and why we're doing it is going to be a lot more successful than what we've been trying to do on climate for 20 years. Um, before we end, I just want to say that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be out there having our reception and, and arguing with people who want to argue with us. Uh, we've also got our book here. and. Um, yeah, we, we, li we like it when young people and students read it, so if you, but if you're poor and you can't afford it, I'll just give you a copy.
So it's 10 bucks, by the way, so we'll be out there in a minute. Ted Nordhaus and Michael Schellenberger co-authored Breakthrough, From the Death of Environmentalism to the Politics of Possibility.